Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah. This is Cog Dog Radio. Today we're going to just answer some email questions um, and then talk about something that I think is really important to everybody in dog sports. So we'll just dive right in with the email questions. The first one I got um, is actually, I, I get several questions like this and it's concerning off-leash control because I do advocate for off-leash exercise in pretty much all of my work. The specific question was, could I talk a little bit about how I train for off-leash control? Because obviously in order to walk your dogs off-leash safely, you need a certain level of, um, you know, verbal control over them because I don't advocate for using an electronic collar in that situation the way that a lot of people do. And the truth is that I do work hard training recalls on my dogs, but if I don't feel safe, I also don't take them off leash. So I think it's possible that I've created, you know, a picture in people's heads of me just, you know, opening the back of my van and <laughs> letting my dogs run off into the woods every time we go for a walk. And that's really not the case. Um, I would say most of my walks are kind of half and half leashed and off leash just depending on where I am, depending on how busy the trail is that day. If it's a busy trail, my dogs are not off leash. Um, if we're likely to run into a lot of other people, I probably pick another trail to be honest, but, um, I don't just let my dogs off leash everywhere I go. So I'm really careful about it. And I think you should be too. And don't take for granted how great a long line and a harness can be for your dog. Walking on a long line in a harness, as long as you let them kind of mill about and sniff about and they're not, you know, dragging you down the trail on at the end of a 20-foot line, um, can be just as good, just as healthy for them as being off-leash. So that's something to consider. And then just a little word on the recall is that I spend a lot of time early on classically conditioning, um just a word for my dogs to come to. So I basically just condition a word that means good things for dogs. You guys all have these words or really more importantly, you probably have actions that you do. So you go and you open the dog food bin or you, whatever you do to begin your ritual of feeding, your dogs probably get excited about that. Um, or maybe when you pick up the leashes off the hook by the door, dogs get excited about that. So that's where, you know, classical conditioning has occurred just through paired association. You do something and then something great happens for dogs. So I train my dogs that if I say their name in a certain tone, that means I've got a prize for them. And I do it really religiously and I do not abuse it because I understand that, you know, a lot of people talk about having a reinforcer like steak or, you know, garlic chicken or something like that, that the dog will find more important than a squirrel or a deer or another dog on a trail. And I think for, with the exception of some very hungry dogs, that's not realistic. And that's kind of the argument against positive reinforcement-based off-leash control. Um, I think the people who are advertising the the most off-leash control type training are, P are e-collar trainers. And, you know, they would argue that you have to have a way to influence the dog far away from you and that 
no reinforcement is going to, you know, be more important to a dog than prey um, or, you know, rotting carcass that they come across or anything like that. Um, and with my dogs in the woods, I've certainly encountered, you know, rabbits, squirrels. Um, there was a time when I came around the corner and both of my dogs were kind of shoulder deep inside um, an elk carcass. <laughs> so we certainly run into really good stuff out there. Um, good stuff for dogs. And so what's important for you guys to understand is that no one piece of food is going to outweigh all of those great things. What outweighs it is reinforcement history. Okay, so I start with classical conditioning. And then once I have the response that I want, which is that quick turn back to me when they hear that word, um, now I'm going to start to treat that like an operant response and pay up for it with reinforcement. And I'm going to do it a lot. And I do it on a one-to-one -one ratio. I, I vary what the reinforcement is, but they always get something when they come to me and I call them. I don't call my dogs. It is a rule unless I have something great to give them. It is a guarantee for them that I have a prize for them. It's never just a, okay, thanks, good dog. Um, because my dogs don't really care about that. If your dog does care about praise and petting, that, that can be fine. And then it's the history of reinforcement that outweighs the great stuff on the trail that my dogs come to. So that's what you should think about in recall training is building a history of reinforcement, never lying to them. For me, if I say that word in that tone, um, it's a promise. It's a promise I have good things. And I, so I don't lie about it. I don't abuse it. And that's the other, I think that's the biggest, you know, issue people run into is they're calling their dogs all the time. Count how many times you call your dog in a day and count how many times you actually pay up big and you're going to find out that it's possible that you're actually destroying your own recall just by using it. So I certainly use it maybe once or twice a day and both times I will pay up to the dog. So that's something to keep in mind. The next question I got was actually concerning competing in agility with the dog on behavioral meds, the person was a little concerned about, um, you know, just whether or not that was ethical to have a dog on behavioral meds competing. And I know so many dogs that are competing on SSRIs. I think when we get into, you know, benzos or Valium derivatives, if we get into sedatives, that's an issue. <laughs> they probably they shouldn't need a sedative to compete or you probably shouldn't be competing. But SSRIs, you know, daily behavioral meds, I personally, I have no problem. Personally, to me, that's between you and your veterinarian and nobody else. And if you don't want to tell your agility friends your dog is on Prozac, don't tell them. <laughs> if they're going to be judgy, don't tell them. Um, be careful about who you invite into that circle. There's so much stigma surrounding mental illness in our culture, and that definitely extends into our dogs. So, Having said that, I know there are different rules in different countries about what drugs dogs can be on when they're competing. So know the rules in your country. And if you're actually in a country where a dog wouldn't be allowed to run on an SSRI, I would love to hear from you. Um, shoot me an email, cogdogradio at gmail.com. So next um, little question was, I talk a lot about dogs that might have crate anxiety or confinement anxiety. 
I also talk about a lot of dogs that can be addicted to their crate, uh, meaning it's their safe space. A lot of times with Prime, we talked about how he would desperately try to get into a small space. If there wasn't a crate available, he would kind of invent a crate out of whatever the space was. And that can be, you know, that can be created through having them confined a ton when they're young um, or just having them seek out the crate anytime they're anxious and then feel relief from that anxiety. So that can certainly happen. And this specific email question was about the dog would race back to the crate as soon as he's done running agility. And I had a client whose dog used to do that and we were in a big metal building and it turned out that she didn't do it when we were outside. And I believe the dog was sound sensitive and that the constant creaks of the metal building or sometimes the wind hitting the metal building were too much for her. And so she was experiencing anxiety while running just because of the sounds. And as soon as she was done running, she would run back to the crate. So what I want you to understand is, you know, don't worry so much about why is my dog doing this? Is my dog feeling anxiety? Is my dog feeling fear? Don't worry about that first. What I first want you to worry about is the fact that this is a behavior that is repeating, which means that it is serving a function for the dog. Okay. So if the dog is running to the crate when he's done running agility, that is serving some function for him that makes him feel better in that moment. Okay, so it is reinforcing to him or he's escaping, you know, he's he's either receiving something in the crate or he's escaping something outside of the crate. It is pretty much that simple. So what's important for you is to do some sleuthing, figure it out. I would be, I, this person said, you know, should I get rid of the crate in that environment? Should I just remove that option? I would not remove that option because you don't know what function it's serving. And when you remove the animal's ability to serve whatever the function is, um, to self-soothe in that way, they'll find another way to do it. And you may produce more problems that way. Um, as well as it's kind of just not fair. You don't know why the dog needs it. And so just taking it away isn't fair. Um, I would be more inclined to put more crates out. I would be more inclined to put crates all over the course and see, you know, if they're available all the time, do you choose to run into them all the time? Or is this just an end of run situation? So I would just kind of do some figuring out. I would try running agility in different places with more crates and just see what's going on. It's really possible, you guys, a lot of dogs kind of just do agility to appease the person that's asking them to do it because they actually are amazing at conflict avoidance. And so if it produces conflict for them to not comply with you doing agility, which even if you're a very nice trainer, social pressure is really hard on a lot of dogs. So it's very possible the dog doesn't like agility and you have to figure that out. If the dog appears to love agility but races to the crate at the end, I would again, put more crates out and see if it is only the end. If it is only the end, then I would train the dog an alternative behavior to do at the end. That ends ultimately in the dog getting to be in the crate. So I'd basically teach them to, you know, put their leash on, do a sit stay standing next to the leash, grab the leash and bring it to you, something like that. And then as soon as that's done, cue them to go to the crate. So let them ultimately have the crate. Okay, so... 
The next thing uh, we're going to talk about is something I talk about all the time, which is sport dogs and the emotions that are that they're experiencing while competing or training. Um, I just got home from Clicker Expo, and if you're not familiar with Clicker Expo, it's an animal training conference. You can find more about it at clickertraining.com. I love it. Hugely recommend it. Um, if you're interested in learning more of the science behind what we do in animal training, I highly recommend it. So one of the kind of big bullet points for me coming off of Expo is just this reminder that emotions and behavior are not separate, that emotions are actually behavior. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, if you picture a dog that you would call happy, okay, so dog has like bright eyes, smiley face, wiggly body. I just described happy by describing his body language. If you only describe happy by using the word happy, uh, you're missing out and you're going to miss details that are important for you as a trainer. So whenever you want to use an emotion word like happy or anxious or afraid, Decide what that looks like. It's really important for all of us. And being reminded at Clicker X by, the, by these, you know, brilliant behavior analysts that we can't label behavior. It doesn't help us. Instead, um, just always say what you're actually seeing. Like that smiley face, those big bright eyes, the loose body language. Um, that's the happy dog. Versus the dog that's afraid is, you know, he's making his body as small as it can be. His ears are pinned back to his head. You can see the whites of his eyes. Um, the corners of his mouth are really tight. That's a dog that's afraid. So knowing what that looks like is important. Emotions are behavior. They are not separate entities. So knowing that when we see a sport dog, I'm just going to describe, I'm just going to describe a dog. I'm going to say um, he's panting heavily. His pupils are dilated. He's probably salivating a little bit. He's vocalizing. He's distress vocalizing. So that really um, almost frantic, and there I go using another label, but what frantic looks like to me in vocalization is high-pitched, short, staccato, repeated um, vocalizations. And his body is tense, and he's pulling at the leash. Okay, so I just described a dog that is in a certain emotional state. And I just described a lot of dogs walking into an agility ring. So if I describe that dog in a different context, maybe he's at the dog park or he's in dog daycare or he's in his house left alone, you might understand that that's not necessarily a comfortable mindset for that dog to be in. But we've really normalized it in the sport of agility where you're looking and you're saying, oh no, that's just because he loves agility. He loves agility. When in reality, I'm going to say, how do you know he loves agility? What does love look like? You know, let's describe it. Let's quantify it. Let's say, you know, let's describe the actual behavior. Um, I'm going to say that that dog is experiencing a high level of arousal and adrenaline and maybe needs to be helped to be in a slightly different emotional state to compete in his sport. 
Unfortunately, people don't help these dogs until they start to see problems. Okay, blasting through bars, not being able to stay on the start line, not being able to stay on contacts. Um, they start to see problems, then they start to go, oh, you know, maybe my dog is a little too worked up. Maybe, maybe my dog isn't in a, a safe emotional state. Versus, you know, if I describe a dog whose ears are up and perky and um, is looking looking to his handler, his tail is up and alert but wagging, and his body movements are really fluid, and he walks into the agility ring like that, to me, that's a dog that's ready to go. That's a dog that's at kind of an optimal arousal state for sport. And probably I'm going to see that dog do better on course. And the other dog, the dog that's kind of out of his mind, he's probably going to run faster. And that's where we get into trouble. Um, he may not run faster. That's not always the case, but we get into trouble because we're kind of speed addicts <laughs> in agility. And so we want speed. We're attracted to that frantic energy. We want dogs that run fast. And so we start to see dogs that are in unhealthy emotional states. I want my dogs really, really wanting to run agility. I work hard to make agility super fun for them. Um, my dog, Iggy, who's my current competition dog, typically she tugs on her leash all the way to the start line. Um, and then we play, we usually have like a little game where um, she actually, you know, vocalizes towards me and I um, leave her on the start line like that. And she, and then she runs. She's not a dog that I would consider too, too aroused to think. She can get too aroused to think, though, if I don't manage her correctly outside of the ring. There are things that send her kind of over the edge. One of them is if we're following a really fast, frantic, loud barking dog. So basically the dog I just described. Um, if we're following a dog like that, that will put her closer to that emotional state. And we don't do as well. She won't hold her start line. She might not listen to contacts if she's in that state. So because I learned early on um, to recognize that in her. I learned early on how to avoid that. So it was punishing for me if I walked out there and I didn't have the dog that I have in training. And so it changed my behavior. Um, and so I've kind of figured that out. Now, I see a lot of people who just kind of go, this is how my dog is in agility. And these people are probably pretty frustrated. Um, they often are pretty frustrated. Because they don't tend to have the same dog out there that they have in training. Or maybe they have a pretty worked up dog in training too, but not as bad. Um, or maybe they're able to interrupt it with reinforcers in training and bring the dog down a notch. Whatever it is, if you're experiencing that kind of stuff, I am here to say that I can help you. <laughs> um, you know, spinning, barking, biting at the handler, unable to meet criteria that you feel is pretty well trained. These can all be because we're seeing an emotional state in the dog that's not actually functional. And I'm teaching a class on this. It actually uh, officially starts tomorrow. Registration is open. It'll be open for another two weeks. I am honored to be teaching it through the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. This is my first course with them and it's called Worked Up and it's all about these dogs. It's all about these dogs who are in 
a high state of arousal and it is affecting their performance. It's not just for agility dogs. I've got some obedience dogs coming in. Um, I have, at least at the bronze level, I've got a couple of um, field training dogs, field trial dogs. I have dogs of different disciplines um, coming in and I'm super excited about it. So if you want some help on that stuff, it's a really great way to get some of my information. Some of you may have, you know, thought about doing my private coaching, but weren't really ready to, you know, dive in. It's a really good way to get some of my information, start applying it, see if it's working for you. The working level spots, the gold level spots are full. Um, I believe I have one more silver level spot. Silver is a, is a level where you can actually, you can ask questions, but you don't post any video of your own personal dog. Um, and then bronze is unlimited, you guys. So you can, and bronze is just, you're a silent auditor. You, you get all the information. And the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy has a huge community. So if you sign up for this at bronze, you can get in the alumni group on Facebook and you can find other friends that are doing it at bronze to discuss it with. So you don't have to feel like an island in the class. But um, I really recommend it. I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of you guys. So you can register for that at fenzydogsportsacademy.com and registration is open until February 15th. So uh, class starts tomorrow though. So recommend hopping in soon. It's very information heavy, lots of concepts. So good idea to go ahead and get in there, start getting your feet wet. And I hope to see you over there. If you have any questions about the class or the podcast, you can shoot me an email at cogdogradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.